When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's a final word, story time, 158. Adam Collins in London, Jeff Lemon somewhere in India. I think he's gone up to Delhi. It's an early, early morning recording for me, Jeff, middle of the afternoon, I suppose. How you doing? Yeah, it's lunchtime, although lunch lunch is a meal that in India can happen over the course of many, many hours. It could be anywhere between about 11am and about 4pm. Could be lunch, which I like. I like that. I'm all in favour of that. I'm a breakfast for dinner kind of guy. I like to have, you know, fried eggs at midnight with some toast, that kind of thing. I also like to have breakfast at in the early afternoon, so it all works out pretty well. Yeah, with your sleep patterns, or should I say, you're uh, you're going to bed at about four in the morning, having breakfast at a conventional hour. Not quite, not quite so much for you, but uh, having it later works just fine too. I wouldn't say I have sleep patterns. I think I've more like sleep Jackson Pollock. <laughs> like it could happen anywhere around the clock in strange splatters and and gouts, and you know, sometimes it might be seventeen hours straight. Sometimes it might be not for three days. Who knows? Uh, what I can tell you, Jeff, is that if and when you do the uh, Edinburgh Half Marathon, or you're going to do the 10K, aren't you? We're going to have a massive lunch afterwards with everybody who's participated, then go and watch the end of the marathon. That's on the 26th of May. I've got my Lord's Tabs hoodie on today. This might be a bit of a clue, actually, as to who we're off to interview later. Well, you won't be physically with me, but I'll be heading off to interview somebody later today, which is why we're recording so early, um, which has a big, strong Lord's Tabs hook, and uh, that is who we're raising money for when we go to Mm. Scotland next May. We've got I think I said on the weekly show about 25 runners. That's a bit of a rubbery number, I realise now, but we've had a number of people get in touch on social media who aren't necessarily a member of our Discord page, and that is brilliant. If you're just widely a member of the Final Word listening community, that's sufficient. Or, or even if you've got a mate who is and is the type who'd like to get involved and, and raise some cash, we are determined to get to 50, and from there... Um, we will start um, with a few other fundraising activities and, and so on with a, a mission of hitting 30 grand across that weekend. So there's a 10K on the Saturday morning, which is a, a relatively easy thing to prepare for. Then there's the half marathon on Sunday morning and the big birth of the full marathon, which is in the middle of the day on the bank holiday weekend, Jeff. And why wouldn't you want to get involved when the money goes towards raising money for not only some of the more most vulnerable members of our community, but it helps channel them into our sport and helps cricket be part of their lives in a way that otherwise wouldn't be the case. We also have our very own Final Word website with the Lord's Tavs now, lordstaverners.org slash the final word, but with dashes in between the words in that way that people do. That's where you can, you know, it's it's like a dossier of our relationship, our deepening relationship over the years. And then and, and there's, there's the membership tier that will be coming soon, I think, on that page as well, where you can get involved with them while letting them know that you're involved with us. And yeah, why not? Why not join our 50 runners that we're going to have dragging my carriage around the streets of Edinburgh. We'll harness you all together and then I'll wave to the people out of the back. This is this is how it's happening in my mind at the moment. Get involved. Uh, the link's in the show notes. You, you can find it. You can figure it out. Right. Story time? I think it should be. That's also where you sign up to the marathon as well, by the way, at the website. Yes, indeed. Story time. How do we do it, Jeff? We do it via the medium of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge, the game we play with nice people on the internet who decide to fund this program by sending in contributions of currency in very particular amounts. Very particular because the amount relates to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what it means. Sometimes they give us a clue, sometimes they don't, sometimes they're new pledges, sometimes they've done it more than once, sometimes they've done it half a dozen times. Callum Pereira, I think this is Callum's first time at the crease. £3.30 is the contribution, which means the number is 330 three zero in whatever configuration we want and the clue from Callum says this a number that engages my love of cricket commentary and history another clue is it's associated with an inaugural match at a ground well Adam you also have a love of cricket commentary and history that's why we make this program and the program's about the history of cricket commentary so you are in the right place Callum you knew where to come what have you done with this number
And Callum's also running at Edinburgh with us, I'm pretty sure. And if he's not, I, I've got, if I got that confused, then you are running with us now. 3.30 for Callum Piero. Welcome to the fun. All right, let's work through some deduction here as we've done before. GBP is the pledge, so let's deal with England. A love of history. Let's assume test matches. I kind of mean, you know, I love the one, the history of one-day cricket as well, but people don't tend to identify as having a love of history only to say, well, you know, here's a discussion around 1980s one-day cricket. It doesn't tend to work that way. The six grounds in England that we know and love and hosted test cricket from, well, the very end of the 19th century up until the start of the 20th century was all sorted by 1902. We actually spoke about the first test match at Edgbaston back when we were doing the Edgbaston test match. We recorded a story time up there on the balcony and spoke a little bit about that. Uh, and then Bramall Lane is the quirky one. That's the seventh one in Sheffield, um, also in 1902. Bramall Lane. We spoke about that at in Manchester, didn't we, at the live show we talked about. Bramall Lane is in my ears and in my eyes, <laughs> which is what I always think when I hear the name. Well, that's it. So Bramall Lane's quirky in that the, Yorkshire did play a lot of cricket there, but um, it did host one test match. And of course, it's where Sheffield United, who are struggling this year, yep. uh, play their football. Uh, and, it, and it became a football ground rather than a multi-purpose venue, shall we say. It is in many ways the echo of English cricket in that it was a strange place that hosted one test match. <laughs> Very good. But there was no commentary then, you know, there was no commentary in 1902. I know that for a fact. No. So I ruled out all of those grounds. You've got to wait 101 years until the next test venue pops up in the UK. That's in Durham in 2003. So, okay, that's an option. Mm-hmm. The Rose Bowl in 2011 is the next ground in England specifically. Boo. That's an option too. Yeah, boo to the Rose Bowl. Hell mm. yeah. Although I feel uh, the more and more time I spend down there and the more I get to know the people that work at that ground, I feel worse and worse about saying nasty things about it. But, you know, sure. got to nice people. Bit. They're nice people, um, right? There are lots <laughs> of nice people. There are a lot of nice people who work at the ICC and we give that institution shit mercilessly <laughs> because it deserves it. You can't play Ashes Test matches at the, at the Rose Bowl. They're going to do it, but they shouldn't do it. It's an awful no. idea. That's all. That is our position. We're sticking to it. Another place they played in Ashes Test Match was in Wales. Now, mm-hmm. this is where I'm going to go to. Cardiff 2009 uh, was where they first played a Test Match, and it was the famous Ashes Test Match. And the commentary hook to this, well, at least I hope it is, is that that was the first Test and the first match ever taken on by Test Match oh, so far. Good. So I think this works. 3.30 or 33, I suppose, that week in Wales. That I, I was there, by the way, Jeff. I was on a jolly. I was on annual leave, not a jolly. I was on annual leave. I, I went over to Cardiff. I was spending two weeks in London. You know, I don't even think I spent that long on leave when I worked in in politics, but I was there for long enough to make it out to the Cardiff Test Match where I spent about a day and a half from memory. Mm. Uh, one of the days was scuppered by rain and I ended up getting on the piss with the then sports minister who was over there as well when Kate Ellis was um, the federal sports minister who was doing her thing. And then the uh, Lord's Test, I went to the Lord's Test for the first couple of days and jumped on a plane and flew back and was back in um, Australia in time to watch days four and five of that. Anyway. Historic, um, historic so Lord's Test because England beat Australia at Lords for the first time in 72 years, was it? Something yeah. like that? Yep. First time since the Verity match of 1934, you're spot on. So that was that was significant in its own way. 75 um, But, yeah, that, that, week, that week at Wales, yeah, it's, it's a lot of things are – Close but not bang on, unfortunately. Like Paul Collingwood, I thought, did he bat for that long or that many balls on the final day? Nearly 344 minutes. Mm. KP, when he was in the go slow as well with Collingwood at the start of day five, had a strike rate of 33.33. So it doesn't quite recurring. Um, um, Collie would have been... Collie would have been spot on, the beef pie man. I would have loved it to have been 330 minutes, but, but not to be. He was out when the score was nine for 233. So again, close but no cigar. The one that I have landed on, which is a bit inadequate, but bear with me, 33 extras, 33 sundries in that England innings on the final day. And the 33rd of them was the final ball of the match. Nathan Horrocks bowling to James Anderson into the rough, leaves it alone, balloons off the wicket-keeping pad of Brad Haddon, spills away for a bye. And that's when Ricky Ponting realises we're cooked here, goes up and consults the umpires and they shake hands and and that's that. So I then went to the huh. Panasar partnership and neither of them work either. Anderson faced 53 balls for his 21. Yep. Panasar, 35 balls for his seven. And I, I just can't – isn't it bizarre thinking of James Anderson being like a senior member 
of that England team, which he was. He was leading the attack mm. in 2009. It feels an eternity ago. Oh. And he wasn't a junior player in the team. He'd been playing for six years by then. Yeah, I mean, it is an eternity ago. If you think back to it, who's playing, what they're up to, you know, what's Nathan Horrocks doing now, now that he's sold all his gear. And and then why did they run the bye? What was the point? <laughs> what was the point of running a bye at that stage when you're batting out a draw? Was it was Anderson on strike? Did they want to keep him on strike? What was, yeah, I, I don't know. I suppose, was, was it the last ball of an over? Question. Was, was it mid-over? It was the last ball okay. over. It's a good question. I'm not quite sure why they would have keep, done that. It would have been strike. a strike. Because Panesar was worse. Anderson wasn't good at batting, yeah. but Panesar was even worse at batting. Okay. Yeah, I played a game with Monty this year where he's really quite gear proud in that like he likes his bat and his pads and his helmet and all that. He got me to take some photos of him to send to the various people who'd given him his kit. So like he's got a bat from Graham Swan, got a pads from somewhere else. It's like he's very proud of the kit that he – because he played right. a lot of cricket now, Monty. He's still yeah. – Still gets around until last year. He was, I think last year he was still playing first team cricket in the Middlesex comp. Mm. He plays in every PCA game that's going, every Lords Tabs game that's going. He's uh, names for doesn't play in all of them, but he's in the he's you know he's in the mixer to play all of them. So um you know he, he's uh, still a, a dedicated cricketer. Watching him bowl as well in that Authors game, you can see why even at sort of forty odd. He was such a threat because it's not, I mean, he doesn't turn it that much. Never did. It's just how quickly the ball spits off the pitch. It, it's a pace thing uh, and it's deceptive. And anyway, he went on to enjoy a really impressive international career across 52 test matches. I remember that because of the Shane Warne sledge that Monty Panisar's played 52 tests, the same test every time or whatever yeah, it was. He hasn't He hasn't played 52 tests. He's played one test 52 times. There you go. That, that's, that's, a, that's a better way of saying the famous Warney line. Anyway, um, yes. Yeah, so- he probably stole that. I, I bet Shane Warne stole that. That's that's not an original. Yeah. I went back and looked at the other options just quickly to confirm that there was nothing bleedingly obvious here. Richard Johnson took six for 33 against Zimbabwe in that first test at Durham in 2003, which was Anderson's second test match, of course, having made his debut at Lords the week before. But I don't think that's it. Nothing at all really works from 2011 at the Rose Bowl where Sri Lanka played their first test match of that series against England, the first at the ground. I also pondered Malahide at a stretch and I thought the link there would be the guerrilla cricket commentary. So we had Test Match Chauffeur starting at Cardiff in 09 and guerrilla cricket doing their first official Test Match as rights holders and the only one they've done, but a significant part of their story some nine years later at Malahide for Ireland's first test, so historic there and, and so on. But again, there's nothing in the numbers that right. gives me a 33 or, or, or a 330. So I'm going to go back and, and confirm my answer, lock it in Eddie, as 33 extras at Cardiff. And just on the history piece here, just to round it off, it's a big part of the whitewash to whitewash book that Daniel Bredig wrote because that test match really does help define an entire generation of Australian and English cricketers, remembering that it's the first test after the 2006-2007 whitewash between the nations. Nobody really knows at this point that England are going to become, with that group, the number one side in the world. It was only... Oh, three months earlier, four months earlier, that they'd been humiliated in Jamaica, which is what the Barney Douglas documentary does such a good job of explaining. All that volatility within the dressing room and eventually getting to uh, Andy Flower being their coach and everything turns around from there and they do become the side that's capable of winning in India and winning in Australia famously and, and all the rest and becoming number one when they beat India at home. But we don't know that in 2009. If they take that final wicket at the start of that series, it's one of those, um, I think, uh, really important test matches in in the context of where that side ends up going. So Anderson and Panesar, um, they, they, people who support the England side, should be very grateful they saved that test match because it, it set the pins up for an Ashes victory in 2009 and and all that came after it, and um, and they were out there in an innings where 33 extras were accrued. So it's improbable that's what Callum Piara is talking about, but it's um, it's it's where I am at the moment for it, and good to have him with us, Callum, that is, as a new pleasure. Callum, that may be it. Maybe that's it, the 33rd extra of the innings, and maybe it was important in, in keeping Monty off strike. I've got Joel. Uh, this is another new one. It's in AUD at $6.87 in Aussie dollars. I couldn't find a clue that went with it, so I'm going to assume this is an open field, Joel. Six eighty-seven. Obviously, if you're looking at cap numbers, it can only be one country, England, the only joint that's handed them out like party favours um, to have given out over 700 mm-hmm. test caps. That would be Ollie Pope. I looked at 
averages in a series, so this might be interesting. So in order to do this, I set the parameters to give me between 68 and 69, um, just to save messing around with decimals and whatever. There are a lot of players who've averaged exactly 69 in a series, more than I thought, which, you know, there's, there's always something inherently entertaining about that. Drava did it twice. Uh, Dinesh Karthik enjoyed a 69. John Embury enjoyed a 69 once. Um, maybe more times than that, who knows. <laughs> but if you... Good luck with if, that. If you go down to 68.7, you can't get a series average or you can't get a batting average of 68.7 unless the sample size is 10 innings or a multiple of 10 innings. So it's very hard to get in a series. You could only get it if you played a five-test series and batted 10 times and got out 10 times, or I suppose a six-test series, not that that would ever happen anymore. Um, so you, you, you can't get there. You can get a 0.66 or you can get a 0.75, like divided by three or divided by four, but you can't – the, the 0.7 you won't arrive at. So sort of the closest to it and, – and I just, I just got sidetracked because I thought this was interesting, not because it's the right answer – Lance Klusner's 68.75 that he averaged in a series in Sri Lanka in 2000, which um, which is a belter of a series. And if you round it up, Lance Klusner, as we talk about on the 99 series, when we have him on the show, spoiler, spoiler, he wore 69 uh, on his back during that World Cup and, and for many other one-day series too. Okay. All right. So the, this I did not know. So the double 69 – which requires some coordination from Lance Klusner. This is the first series post Hansi, right? So Hansi's just been done. He's kneeling penitently before God. He's confessing how the devil led him astray and made him take bunches of USD in a shoebox in cash. And then South Africa have to try to pull things together and Sean Pollock is captaining the side and there's controversy around that because he's a fast bowler and obviously fast bowlers can't captain teams. It's never going to work. No one will ever do it, etc. So they're in Sri Lanka and that's quite a challenge at the time. Sri Lanka are a good team and at home they're formidable and, and performing away from home is difficult and all the rest of it. So Klusner doesn't make many in Gaul. Sri Lanka win by an innings in the first game. Then he makes 100 in Candy, 118 in a, a low-scoring game. Sri Lanka bats second. They get a lead of 55, which is quite a bit. And then South Africa make 231 the second time. So they only set Sri Lanka 177 and then go on to defend it by seven runs. It, it's a grandstand finish. Both openers out for a golden duck. We talked about this, uh, was it was it a Hall of Fame bit the other day about the one day is because when Sri Lanka played India, both their openers got golden ducks. Patam Nasanka and Big Frankie Runes both got golden globes there. So this time it was another Sri Lankan team. It was Marvin, the Martian, Adapatu and uh, Two Phones, Jaya Surya, who both got golden globes there to, to Pollock and Nanty Hayward. Remember Monantau Hayward? with the, the mm. white shock of hair. Oh, yeah. He was quick. It was that era where South Africa had who was going to be the next Alan Donald and Nanty Haywood looks like he was going to be. Uh, and then briefly Andre Nell. Andre Nell. Bowled at a pretty Gunter. decent pace as well and used to rough up players. No one was ever close to being as just elegant and glorious as Alan Donald, but no. Haywood was the natural successor. And I suppose Mackay and Teeny became that, but it was with, of course, with Haywood with the blonde hair and Donald with the yeah. blonde hair. That, that's... In a way, that might have been a tag that worked against him. You see a lot of players who, when they're young, they get compared to a, a great and they can't meet those expectations no matter how that, how good they become sort of in their own right. Yeah, um, and, he, and he was he was short. He was a different kind of operator because he didn't have that height. He kind of skidded the ball on and could get smacked on pitches where it wasn't doing much for him. But he, he takes wickets here. Um, he gets another one. He gets Mahela caught behind, I think, and, and Sangakara's out. Four for 21. Sri Lanka at one point. Russell Arnold's batting at three in this series. I don't know how or why that came about, but in, in the test side, he makes 40, I think. Ranatunga makes 88, nearly gets him home and gets out late in the piece. Klusner takes a couple of late wickets, affects a run out. They win that game narrowly. And then in the third test, Klusner's 95, not out. Nancy Hayward can't hang on at number 11, although Klusner batted almost five hours for the 95. So maybe if you got a wriggle on, you would have got your 100. Didn't happen. So anyway, they, um, they set Sri Lanka 263 in 67 overs in that third test. And Sri Lanka don't even bother. They, they, they make 195 for four. Mahela makes 101. They end up 68 runs short going at two and over. So... Again, might have might have moved a little faster, although batting last, I'm sure conditions were difficult over there, but only four down. Russell Arnold's been moved down the order. I couldn't work out whether he was injured and, and they were worried that they didn't have any batting left because their tail was not very good as per the previous game where they'd fallen away late. So 
And South Africa don't give up until they bowl 67.1 overs. So at the point where they've got five balls left and there are six wickets to take, that's when they agree to the draw. <laughs> they do not call it off before then, which which I quite liked um, as a, a sign of aggression. So, you know, it's seen as a fair, reasonably successful series to draw that and, and be close to winning in the last game. But, you know, it's not the right number. So in terms of – I did also look at six for 87s. I was just, just going to add that, like, Sean Pollock talks about that era as being, like, the most important cricket that he played because it, as captain trying to keep things together, I'm sure you remember, Jeff, when the when the Cronier revelations were, were – well, when he when he was exposed to Australia were over there playing a one-day series in 2000 and, and Pollock was throwing the captaincy and they were in disarray and they managed to just keep things on track and they, you know, had the Home World Cup coming up just three years later and they were a test side that, was near enough to the best in the world and they had that chastening experience in the one day world cup in in 1999 so you know it's to the credit of Sean Pollock that that didn't completely lose you know, any momentum and they, they stayed a, a pretty strong side through all through all of that yeah. um through all of that time because you can see where you know with Herschel Gibbs being implicated as well that could have destroyed them well and yeah probably it was surprising almost that it didn't um, and it, it did take that degree of leadership, he's just got a certain charisma, I suppose, Sean Pollock. So I looked at six for 87s as well. That's only ever happened in test matches. It's never happened in any women's internationals. Six for 87 takers, not all of them, but a lot of them. It's quite a list of final word favourites. Johnny Briggs is in there. Aubrey Faulkner's in there. Buster Newpin, the South African off spinner who bowled with one leg and one eye. He's in there. Uh, Alan Davidson, Ian Bishop. Venkatapati Raju, your favourite. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Six for eighty-seven, mm. but and and there was heat streak as well. Speaking of people who tangled with the ICC corruption regulations and emerged on the wrong side of them, <laughs> and who were burly all-rounders who had to carry their teams for a long period of time as well. Um, Heath Streak in Zimbabwe's first test on English soil at Lords in 2000. He took six for 83. Considering they'd been bowled out for 83 in the first innings, um, it's reasonably impressive, even mm. though England make 400. Gets Ramprakash early for 15, LBW. Gets NASA caught for 10. It has to come back for another spell, gets Atherton, LBW, 55, has to come back again, dig deep later, get Graham Hick, LBW, for 101. So he's got the first four wickets to fall. I think I think Craig Irvin gets involved at that point, if I'm remembering the scorecard right. Heathstreak finishes it off later, gets Andy Caddick out, gets Ed Giddens, speaking of final word favourites, the Christmas tree salesman um, <laughs> who bowled rapid occasionally when he could get it right, gets him late. That's one of the few, maybe three tests that Giddens plays. Takes six for 87. Yeah, they lose by an innings, but it, it's it's an indicator of what Heath Streak will always have to do, which is just do all of the work for that team in what becomes a catalogue. You look through his records like year on year. It's 2001 and 2003, he averages 40-plus with the bat in test cricket and it, in the 30s with the ball, which considering they were getting smashed most games is huge. And, and in ODIs through that sort of five or six years, he's averaging between 30 and, and low 50s at one point with the bat and 20s or 30s with the ball. Like, incredible player. And, and you know, I know I mentioned that he got pinged later, it, it, you know, not, not long before the end of his life, for taking a bung from somebody for information. But he also didn't get paid by Zimbabwe for years. He uh, worked coaching Zimbabwe and ended up getting stiffed more often than not and, and did such a huge amount for that country. I, I find it difficult to hold that against him. Thank you, uh, Joel687. Welcome to our world. And, uh, yes, uh, it was nice to have a chance to talk about his streak a little bit when he passed away earlier this year. And, Jeff, before we go to the break at NordVPN, we've been talking a lot about them recently. VPNs, extremely useful. This is the basic point, especially when you're travelling, especially when you're overseas and you need to access things that you cannot access because the internet says that you're somewhere else and you need to be in your home country. And with a VPN, you can make the internet believe that you are wherever you want, wherever you want. So while I've been bouncing around India, I've been able to keep up to date with cricket and listen to commentary and watch bits of matches and all of the things that I might not be able to do. And there are all kinds of other things. Sometimes on a, on a streaming platform, there might be a show that's available in one country, but not in another country. But if the internet thinks you're in that other country, haha, you have outsmarted the system. It is very satisfying when the VPN gets it right. And I've been using the Nord one for a while and it, it gets it right much more often than most. I was going to say, this isn't in our podcast brief, but I'll say this much. NordVPN is a VPN. It gets it right more than many others that I've used yeah. across the journey as far as accessing platforms where there's 
blockers put up and, and all the rest of it. But in addition to that, protects all your data, like important stuff like bank details, passwords, etc. You can save a lot of money on flights or subscriptions by putting yourself in the country where you're buying it from and working in that currency. And indeed, just being in the country according to your uh, internet location can access it at the local rate, which is always helpful. Save a few bob here and there. You can protect your data when you're working on public Wi-Fi, as you and I constantly are, um, and it protects you from viruses, malware, phishing, etc. And again, an important one for me, because I do get frustrated, it is the fastest VPN in the world. No mucking around, no buffering when streaming stops and all the rest of it throttling. You can have six devices running on it on this uh, very generous offer that, Jeff, you're about to tell us about to access NordVPN, the quickest VPN in the world. This is this is the final word combo with NordVPN. You get a discount off your plan. You go to nordvpn.com slash TFW, which stands for the final word. Um, that code, as well as the discount, can give you four months free on the two-year plan and you get a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't think it works, which it will. Delightful. Uh, Let's go to the break. On the other side of it, I've got a monster of a story. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Final word story time, 158 Adam Collins with Jeff Lemon. What we're going to do here is we're going to do two in a row from Jeff and we'll finish with mine because I suspect mine's going to take some telling. Ryan Snedden is next for you though, Jeff. Another new pledger, three new pledgers in a row. How good is this? And that his number is a quite important final word number two. It is the uh, the original, the original nerd pledge number, two, two, two. It's the Philip Meng. It is the Philip Meng. It's two pounds 22. Um, Philip was coming in in AUD when he was making a Richie Benno joke and that's how Nerd Pledge started all those years back. And and this was the original number and since I didn't look at cap numbers before, I thought I'd look at them again. 222 is Titch Freeman, who we've talked about extensively, oh. so I can't talk about Titch Freeman again, but new Titch is going well. Phoebe and Jono Halen had their little boy who his nickname Titch at the moment and Jono picked him up a Glenn Maxwell T-shirt. So they're the final word Glenn Maxwell shirts that are going around. Jono bought four, one for each member of the family, including one for Titch. He says when he turns about 13 or 14, he'll be able to fit the shirt that he's been bought. So this is long-term investment stuff from Jono. This is getting in on the ground floor of Glenn Maxwell fandom. How did we forget to plug the Glenn Maxwell T-shirts off the front of the show, Jeff? That is bad from us. What I can do, though, is show you what I have in my hands. I have the Titch Freeman book that you oh, were yes. um, hoping to purchase. Uh, Caroline has bought it for you, and we love Caroline. Passing love to her at the moment through a, through a challenging time. But uh, Titch Freeman, the book that you found, and the decline of the leg break bowler by David Lemon, mm-hmm. um, which you said a few weeks ago could only be found for about 140 bucks in a bookshop in New Zealand. Caroline has done a lot better than that, and she's asked me to take it back to Australia for you, and I will after I've read it, of course. She's she, read it too. she managed to dig it up for six quid somewhere, I think. Um, so brilliant work from Caroline. Thank you. So 222, I won't talk about Titch again because I've done that enough. MSK Prasad, who's come up a lot recently, was 222 for India. Ridley Jacobs, who I always admired as a player of the West Indies keeper, and Barbara Azam for Pakistan. There's another player. So Tim Peach and I went to a shopping mall in Chennai, Adam, which was very posh. It was very kind of shiny and expensive and everything in it was obviously expensive and they had a kind of – they had a time zone on the top, like a, like a games park thing like we used to have in Melbourne. And in that was a set of cricket nets where you could face simulated bowling and it was like, okay, you can face Jasper Boomerah, you can face Shoah Bakhtar, you can face – Jacob Orem? Jacob Orem. How was Jacob how did Jacob Orem get a gig on the machine? But he's 222 for New Zealand. IPL man. IPL player Jacob Orem. Uh, big tall all rounder. I can see how it would happen. It's of its era. It sounds to me like you've been at the equivalent of um Westfield London Sixers, mm. just t- except they can simulate uh the exact bowlers. So um uh, yeah, uh, more play and did you play any of the it was table hockey was the thing at time right. zone, wasn't it? And Daytona, the Daytona in the in the cars, and then you'd play that. Um, it was air hockey, mm. air hockey. Uh, that's a recollection of Dandenong Plaza time zone that I've got from the mid nineties. Yeah, when you're on a high school date, you play table hockey, then you go outside and play tonsil hockey. Cap number two hundred and twenty-two, <laughs> though, in the dusty old bastards vein, there are two good options here. Colin Guest played one test for Australia in the Sydney mm-hmm. Ashes Test of nineteen sixty-three. Didn't take a wicket, but since I looked at South Africa already today, I thought I'd do that again. Derek Varnells 
whose first name was George, by the customer of the time, went by his middle name of Derek. Why not? Why not be a Derek if you could? He was a right-handed bat born a bit before World War II in 1935. Gets a gig for Eastern Province. I can only deduce from looking at his career, Adam, that he just wasn't very good. There's sort of faint praise that he's described in that way that people do where they say he was a compact and correct batsman, you know, which usually means "Mm, didn't make many but looked okay. He does have his money. Yeah, had three shots. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, like a shorter Alistair Cook of South Africa in the 1950s. So 1955, first-class debut. He makes 49, batting at first drop on debut. That's pretty decent, but that's his highest score of the season. Averages 15 by the end of the season. Next season, he only plays three times and goes okay. Makes two fifties opening the batting in a game versus Orange Free State. That's what, yeah, get those Orange Free State bastards. Uh, I have nothing against Orange Free State. I don't know much about them, aside from that, that they have an interesting name. He makes another 50 against the university side, batting at number three, and I'm going to guess they weren't very good either. And then he has his one really good season the following season, 57-58. He makes 519, averaging 51.9. Obviously, he's out 10 times. Could have averaged 0.7 if he'd made a different number of runs. And he starts the season with his finest hour, where he opens the batting against Border. Uh, That's the team, not Allen. His team is all out for 267. He's playing for Eastern uh, whatever it is, Eastern Province. They're all out 267. He carries his bat for 151 not out, 56% of the total. Gets them a lead. They're batting first, but um, they, they, they bowl out border next time around for a lead of 19. Then he top scores again, second innings or third innings of the match. He makes another 62. The rest of his team doesn't make many. They, they're all out 183. They take 75 overs to do it, mind you. So they set 202 and then they nearly win it. Well, actually, both teams nearly win it because Border end up eight for 186. So they're 16 runs short. They've got two wickets in hand. And again, maybe if you'd scored a bit more quickly, um, things might have been a little easier. So that's in 48 overs. Anyway, that's, that remains his only 100 for another six seasons after that into the 1960s. So he moves teams to Transvaal, then he moves to Natal, he gets around. And in 1964-65, England are about to tour. He gets picked in the match against the rest. I don't know how because it's not like he's done much. Doesn't make any in that game either. And then suddenly after that, he peels off three tonnes in successive matches. So he's made 100 in nine seasons and then he makes three in three games back to back. 102 against Transvaal, 111 against the touring MCC and 105 against Rhodesia. So he gets picked in the test team. And he's got, you know, this is a decent England side, boycotts opening the batting, Ted Dexter, Barrington, Fred Titmus, MJK Smith captaining. And as you do when you pick an opening bat who's on a hot streak, South Africa bat him at number eight. Number eight! <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you people? So, you know, England make a huge score and he comes in at eight and unsurprisingly doesn't go well. Makes three. They get forced to follow on. Then he makes 11 in the follow on. England win by an innings and 110 runs. That didn't work. So the second test, they promote him to number seven. That's how you fix things up. Again, England make a huge score. Derek makes 21 and 23 after being forced to follow on again. But although they don't lose this test, he's the last player out. They managed to hold on for a draw where Kenneth Bland makes it 100. And then in the third test, South Africa finally bat first. They make a massive score. So again, he's sitting around for days waiting to bat and he finally comes in at 439 for five, makes 19. South Africa bat 10 and a half hours in their first innings. England bat 11 and a half hours. The game's cooked. It's, it's inevitably a draw. So finally, with the game dead, in the third innings, he gets promoted again and he bats at number four. I can't figure out if this was like a last chance saloon or whether it was just out of pity. He makes 20 and then England face eight overs at the end and he bowls two of the eight overs. The only time in his whole first class career that he bowls one maiden, none for two. I I, I don't know if they picked the team for the fourth test at this point, but it feels very much like a valedictory appearance for him. Oh, why don't you go and bat at four, mate? Why don't you have a bowl, mate? If he didn't know he was getting dropped before this test, he must have known it when they handed him the ball towards the end because that is not only his last test but his last first-class match. He gets dropped for the fourth. It's a five-test series, gets dropped, and he immediately retires from all first-class cricket. He's like, nah, bugger it. So the weirdness of this, nine years of being pretty mediocre, hot streak for three games get in the test team, play three tests, get dropped and say that you're not going to bother doing it anymore. He 
died pretty recently, 2019, and Colin Guest, his cap number sharer, died in 2018. So a couple of dusty old bastards who only left us relatively recently. But, um, yeah, three three test matches for Derek and one for Colin Guest, and they were cap number 222. Very nice. Always nice to broaden out the dusty old bastard world. Well done for that one, and uh, thank you to Ryan Steddon for getting on board. All right, Jeff, time jump. We do this from time to time when recording story time where it starts in one place and it ends in another. We have one more answer to do. It's on me to record it and we have a double header, which means that the same number has been sent through by two patrons. There is um, the chance for us to bundle it up together and I think I've got an answer which meets the challenge. Uh, I'm not sure if the clue comes in from James Sprague or from Andrew Cooper. I think Andrew Cooper. Uh, Thank you for the amazing stories. This year's Ashes has got me well and truly into story time. Uh, My number is 202. The controversial highest first-class score for a true cricketing eccentric who played first-class cricket in India and England, said to be a Ben Stokes-style captain many years ago who bowled all sorts, including his special full tosses that landed on the stumps. He created a place that has produced many great cricketers. I'm sure there's a great story to tell. And, Jeff, Andrew's not wrong. This is an absolute belter of a story. So um, strap yourself in, like I said a few weeks ago. Hopefully it um, lives up to expectations because I've talked it up here. Um, Well, this is why why I wanted to hear it so much because um, people might be noticing from the background noise I'm no longer in the recording location where I was because I'm out and about in Delhi. But um, I had to hear the story. So (laughs) we're, we're, we're finishing this episode as best we can. Lay it on me. Yeah, meanwhile, I'm resting my um, laptop on an empty pint glass so I can look into the camera. So we're, we're, we're both making it work the best we can. Right, so before <laughs> getting to the answer itself, a note for the great Alan Shield, who co-broke the World Series cricket story in 1977, a great of the journalism industry, both cricket and footy in South Australia. Um, his cricket was in the 19... When he was in his um, early 20s, he was part of the South Australian side with Les Flavel and Ian Chappell and KG G. Cunningham and Barry Jarman and all the rest of it. But he did make a 202. Um, the man known as Chef, because Sheffield Shield, um, imagine the name there. He made 202 against the travelling MCC in 1965, not out. I had lunch with him a couple of years ago. With, it's actually quite good. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, there are worse, there are worse, you know, uh, especially uh, in Clubland. I had lunch with Chef a couple of years ago with Dan Bredig and Matt Clemo, who have both worked with him when they were younger lads, which was a, a nice thing. And I know that Chef um, follows everything very closely. So an outside chance you'll hear this podcast. Hello if you are. But yes, he didn't play first-class cricket in either England or India, and that's who we're looking for. And I can tell you the name of the person in question is Rollo John... Oliver Mayer, or Jack Mayer as he was known. But how cool would have it been to go by the wow. name of Rollo? It's like, yeah. that's usually the nickname, right? And why would you go with Jack? Like, if, if you've, you've already been given Rollo to work with, yeah. which is, you know, and very underrated chocolate, the Rollos. Yes. Those, they'd come in those <laughs> cylinder things and they'd have like a nice thick caramel on the inside um, of the cylindrical chocolate coating. Why wouldn't you go with Rollo instead of Jack? Everybody's Jack. That was one of the first things I thought as well. Anyway, he went by Jack and he was a real leader. And it's a great story, especially around the 202. But it's going to take us a long, long time to get there, Jeff. Jack was born, or Rollo was born in 1905 in Bedfordshire. Son of a clergyman and went to the posh Halebury School in Hertfordshire where his dad was um, by that stage working. He grew up overlooking a cricket field. So in a way, it was kind of meant to be at school. He was an enthusiastic all-rounder or so I read. Wisden actually cited him uh, when he was a school's cricketer saying that he had a flair for the big occasion and there is definitely a theme of that in his professional career. Big game player and larger than life. So, to begin, he went off to Cambridge to study in 1923, picked up a a double first in classics there. I think everyone who finishes their degree at Cambridge gets a double first. Anyway, far more effective. Well, maybe not everyone who gets a degree, but everyone who gets a first gets it called a double first, something like that. He's far more effective with the ball than the bat in those three seasons where he's a student taking 56, 55 and 38 wickets respectively, 12 fifers. So, yeah, he's a pretty useful operator. And he plays some extraordinary non-university matches, though. The first of which is in 1924 when he's a teenager. He gets selected to play for the gents against the players, a fixture that we talk about seemingly every every other week at the moment. Well, he was part of it in 1924. And 
He's bowled for a duck on the first day by none other than Aussie Quick from the 1921 Ashes, Ted McDonald. By this stage, as I think we've talked about yes. on Storytime before, Ted moves to England and has an eight-year stretch with Lancashire to end his extraordinary life in the game. Well, he plays for the players against the gents and, and takes a sixfer on the first day, and, and Jack Mayer is one of those. With his bowling, Jack was known as, and this is again I'm quoting here, compulsively experimenting, ceaselessly plotting and planning with subtle variations of pace, spin and swerve. So I think that kind of like his obvious era, right? He did a bit of everything off a relatively short run up. He didn't bowl quickly, but he did bowl accurately. And as a teenager, boy, how it worked in this really high profile name. He takes eight for 38, which includes Wally Hammond before he broke his cock, just before he broke his cock. And, f- wow. and Phil Mead, who's the man who made the most county championship runs ever. The Hampshire greats. So on that basis, he was probably on the England radar quite early, um, based on what we learnt the other week with Frank Drews, a couple of games for Cambridge and into the England test team. It's the interwar period as well. So, you know, I suppose in, in some respects, he's unlucky not to be immediately capped by England. But he doesn't play county cricket, only the university games, until two years later in 1926, when he plays for the south of England against Australia. Now, that previous non-university game, if you like, he's knocked over by one hero of the 1921 Ashes, Ted McDonald. Uh, Jeff, it won't surprise you that against Australia in 1926, uh, he, get knocked, he gets knocked over by the other hero of 1921, Jack Gregory, McDonald's partner in crime, also for a duck. Oh, perfect. You know, Complete the set. Uh, absolutely. But just as it was um, in that previous game where he picked up an extraordinary eight for... He gets, a, he gets a two for here, but that two includes Bill Ponsford. So, you know, starting to add up these great names. Hammond, Mead and Ponsford uh, are taken in his first two games where he's not playing against fellow students and playing county games and so on. In the Cambridge versus Australia game yep. in the same summer, he takes six for 65 as well. Gets Herbie Collins, gets Charlie McCartney, gets Bill Ponsford for a second time in the summer uh, and gets two more wickets at the end. So an eight-wicket match against the Australians after an eight for against the players. So this guy, you know, he may not have pace, but he's got something very special going on as a very young man. But once the university season is over in 1926 and he's completed his degree, he immediately decides to up stumps to India. He gets into the cotton trade, which is where he, broadly speaking, spends the next decade, which sounds about right for someone who's... Oh, it doesn't sound like he's from like a super duper posh background, but a posh school and went to Cambridge and wants to go and make some money in India, as, as I suppose a lot of people did at the time before independence. And it sort of reads from this point like he made that call to go just when the selectors were about to give him test honours uh, in the winter of perhaps 26, right. 27. But that doesn't happen. Instead, September 1926, so just after he arrives, he gets picked. Jeff, and you'll love this, in the Bombay quadrangular final to play for the Europeans against the Hindus. So upon arrival, they've immediately recruited him, the Europeans, to play against the Hindus in those games we've spoken a lot about in that sort of pre-partition era, the quadrangulars and the pentangulars and all the rest of it. This was the one in Bombay. And he makes a really big impression takes four for 38 in the first innings with the ball and he adds to that remarkable list of victims one CK Nayadu in his first first class game in India uh, and then takes three wickets in the second so his first class India debut is a seven wicket match including right. the great CK Nayadu like they would have been hungry for it right because because basically if you like young British guys going to India tended to die within a couple of years so <laughs> as soon as somebody jumped off the boat with some a bit of first class pedigree it would have been snapped up immediately yeah that, that, that sounds about right like and he keeps playing for the for the Europeans. The next game he plays is for Europeans and Parsis against the MCC, who were touring India in 1926-27. Not a test tour, because of course they weren't playing test cricket as yet. But the game after that one, his next game after that, on New Year's Eve 1926, just four months or five months after lobbing in the country, he gets picked for India to play against the MCC at Eden Gardens. So he's pretty much fresh off the boat playing for the Indian team. Of course, it's not a test match, but it is a a first-class match. Some real heavy hitters there as well. Andy Sandham, Morris Tate, Arthur Gilligan, who's captaining the side. And now Jack is playing in the team with CK Naidu, who he picked up a couple of games prior. And, you know, he's always getting the big names with the ball. His theme continues. His wickets include Andy Sandham. And then, unfortunately, he chooses to... 
sort of after these uh, moments of great success, kind of pack it in with the cricket. He occasionally plays right. for the Europeans, but not so often. But he did show up in consecutive okay. finals in the quadrangular. One in 1927-28 and one in 1928-29. Okay. How about this? In 1927-28, he runs amok. In the first innings, he takes a fifer. Oh, sorry, my apologies. In the semi-final, takes a fifer to get the Europeans to the final. Mm. And in the final against the Muslims, right. they bowl him out for 59. And our man Jack takes seven for 28 in the first innings and nine for 160 Jesus. in the second for match figures of 16 for 188. He's barely playing cricket at the time and he's rocked up in the final and taken a 16-wicket match. Only 28 times in the history Rollo. of first-class cricket has anyone taken more than 16 in a game and Rollo is one of those. Rolls up in the final the next year and takes seven more wickets and makes 66 in the chase but the Parsis get the better of them. But this guy is what? an absolute freak, right? Now, at this juncture, in the late 20s, he starts to occasionally come back to England for the summer, plays the odd game for Cambridge. Okay. But, you know, he, he, we, as we learn later on, he's back in England becoming an educationalist. He only plays 12 first-class games between 1928 and 1936, the prime of his career, only 12 games leading up to 1936. And that did include some Ranji Trophy action. He was made captain of Western India, only occasionally, but still, he was leading a first-class side in the Ranji Trophy when he was available to play. <laughs> but most of this journey was spent in business in the cotton trade and transitioning into education. And this is ultimately why he comes home. He comes back to England in 1936 and sets up right. shop in Somerset. Now, there are a dozen years have elapsed yeah. between him routing the players for the gents uh, in 1924 and now turning out for Somerset as a 31-year-old. Mm -hmm. And he comes back as a batsman-inspired. He's twice as effective as he was before with the blade. But the reason he came back to England had really nothing to do with cricket. It was to do with teaching. Jack was an eccentric. He uh -huh. was restless. He was always looking for the next thing. And he found the next thing. He set up what's known as the Millfield School, yeah. an old public school, but a relatively new one. He set it up uh, just before the war. He took six princes with him from India. He brought six princes back, young princes, to give them an education yeah. and set up... It's good to have a few, right? <laughs> like, you, you don't want to take two and then have one sort of blow a tyre or something and then it's no good. Like, you, you want to have six. You want to have, you want to have sort of one for each corner of the room and then a couple of spares. Well, that's basically how it plays out, right? And, and he, like, he, this guy's clearly a little bit bonkers. Like, he sets the fees himself. So for rich people, he taxes them highly. For the less talented, or less less wealthy, sorry, but the highly talented, like, not just in academic pursuits, but creatives and sports people, he let them in for free, especially cricketers. Now, I'll give you some examples of cricketers. We love that. I do. That's equity. It is. That is promoting equity. That's what we're all about. Here are some people who went to the Millfield School. Ian Botham who went to play cricket, Simon Jones, who was a scholar there, and someone who, who you know and love as well, Isabel Westbury. When Izzy went back to live in England, she was a, a pupil and a boarder at the Millfield School in the 2000s. And she's a disciple of Rollo. Yep, she's part of the Rollo story. And so was Peter Roebuck. Peter Roebuck got admitted to study there, and Rollo became a big mentor to Roebuck. He was the headmaster from there straight away, but yeah, Roebuck spoke lovingly of, of Maya later in life and wrote about him as well. Anyway, so just to go back to the the cricket side of things. He's playing for Somerset from the summer of 1936 until the war, but he only okay. made himself available for home games and in the summer after the school term finished. So he'd play about six to eight games a year. And most famously, in 1936, he played a game in August against Lancashire. They're following on. They're three for Sodall. They're 150 runs behind and it's game over. And Rollo walks in and rattles off 202 not out and they draw the game seven down. He's only out there for 225 minutes. So despite the fact they're trying to draw oh. the game, he apparently, according to the report, plays beautifully through the offside. There's a bit of a hint of a suggestion right. that was all quite right with the game. Some idea that they were letting him get 200 to do okay. with some benefit donation or whatnot. But this is in David Foote's book, which I have no access to. But um, what's certain is that it was a glorious innings. And this guy who made his name as a medium pacer made a stunning double hundred against Lancashire in 1936 upon his return home. He's still mainly a bowler, it, though. I can jump in here for a second. It, it sounds like, because what Glenn Maxwell did in the Afghanistan game the other day, there's a sort of similar innings played by a Dutch spinner in a one-day international where he made 150-plus batting at six or seven. 
this guy is Rollo Vandermerver. <laughs> like, they've, they've joined in history somehow. Yeah, well, I, I feel it. I mean, the Somerset connection, the works here. I mean, you've got to bang on. So just to fast forward to the war, he plays against the Australians for the gentlemen when Australia were there in 1938 at Lords. And guess what? Takes five okay. for 66. And who does he get? Fingleton, Brown, and, of course, Dom Bradman. This is the guy, Rollo, who gets oh, yes. the big names. Anyway, goes into war service, as they all more or less do, joins the RAF. And in 1947, he's back playing cricket, and he takes on the captaincy of Somerset full-time at age 42. So we're now, you know, 26 years after he made his first-class debut, or 23 years, rather, at yep. university. He's finally leading Somerset. He gives away the teaching for a year and just takes this on. He makes 850 runs and takes 43 wickets, but his back is completely stuffed. There's a story where he's unable to take a slips catch due to his back. So to give a sense of his eccentricity, he offered the bowler a quid as compensation for not being able to bend down and slip to catch the ball. So yeah, I guess I guess this is the nature of um, county cricket in the immediate <laughs> aftermath of the war, which we, we've talked about before with um, right. Major Spencer at, at Surrey and so on. Roebuck said of um, Rollo's 1947 captaincy, surprise was his weapon, experiment his fancy, dullness his enemy, but inconsistency his weakness. And, and so it proved at one stage during the season when it was raining, as captain, he walked out into the field with a huge umbrella up and refused to leave the field because it was raining until they got taken off. So he was that kind of guy, brilliantly bonkers. <laughs> he played a few more games until his mid-40s and then finally wrapped it up. 124 games, 408 wickets at 25. Some of them, as I say, utterly stunning. 4,600 first-class runs at 24, including that wondrous 202 not out. Rollo, Jack Meyer, what a life in cricket. He stayed on at Millfield School for decades until 1971, then went to teach in Greece, where there, it said, an aura everywhere he went, just as it was in India and Cambridge and Somerset and in the RAF. What an amazing life. Rollo, Jack Meyer, and that's the story for James Sprague and uh, Andrew Cooper for 202. Do you know why he went to Greece, Adam? He went to Greece because he heard they had a thirst for knowledge. <laughs> he didn't study sculpture, but he might have and possibly should have. <laughs> he probably should have. He would have excelled at it at St Martin's or else. He would have started his own school of sculpture. That's the kind of things Rollo got up to. I love this. Um, I need to know more about Rollo. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig more. I'm going to find out more. And, and I have a feeling that he's going to become something of a, a final word mascot to, to join the pantheon of mascots as we go on and as we learn more about the man they called Rollo or didn't because he went by Jack. Well, he, also was a, he was also a lad, right? He used to bet, like he used to go to casinos and, and spend all of his money at the casino and go broke and do it all again. Like, he was that kind of guy. I guess that's the idea, right? Like, his personality was to, in the clue we got here from Andrew, to, to kind of bet it all on black per Ben Stokes and, you know, how things might have turned out differently had he yep. not gone to India in 1926 to play some of the most remarkable cricket you could ever hear of and play for India and instead stayed put and played for England. He probably would have ended up England captain at some stage based on what we know. Well, I mean, it's a much more interesting story doing what he did, so I'm glad that he did what he did and ended up playing for India. And I'm glad that we've unearthed that story now. So it might work for either of our pledgers. Um, who knows? The, two, the 202 could work in either direction. But um, that's it. That's beautiful. And uh, I think that's a wrap. We can put a bow on, a, on another story time if you want to play nerdpledge, patreon.com forward slash the final word. And uh, anything else before we call it a night? All I have to say is to uh, uh, thank everyone who's been pledging to continue to do so. Um, jump on the Discord page, uh, stick with us through the Edinburgh Half Marathon and uh, have a nice weekend. Have a nice weekend. I had to go